You are now listening to the October 8th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the Twelve Apostles. Today, we will learn about Apostle Thomas. In the first part of John, chapter 21, verse 2, there appears a reference to Apostle Thomas. It says, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus. Here, Didymus is a Greek name and Thomas is an Aramaic name. It's interesting to note that both Didymus and Thomas refer to a twin. So, biblical scholars surmise that Thomas was most likely one of the twin brothers. Thomas is widely known for being doubtful. But once we look at Thomas's life, we will see that it is presumptuous to just label him simply as Doubting Thomas. Unlike what we may have heard, Thomas loved the Lord very deeply. He did not stay doubtful but became assured, and he did much to serve the Lord by sacrificing himself. Today, I hope we rediscover the Apostle Thomas beyond what may be commonly known about him. By doing so, we may also attain the spiritual lessons the Lord gives us. The first record of Thomas appears in John chapter 11. Just prior to that, in chapter 10, Jesus proclaims to the Jews in Jerusalem, I am the good shepherd. I am the door through which the sheep must enter. He then continues to tell them, God is my father. To the Jews, someone describing himself as the son of God was tantamount to committing blasphemy. And Jesus did just that. So they picked up rocks and were about to stone him to death. At that moment, Jesus' disciples moved in quickly and ushered Jesus away. They basically grabbed him and fled the angry mob. They ran to the east of the Jordan River. Then, while they were there, they heard some very sad news. They heard that Lazarus, the older brother of Mary and Martha, who lived in Bethany, was critically ill. He was dying. Jesus loved these three siblings and would not likely sit and watch him die. The disciples were concerned about going to them because the three siblings lived in Bethany, and Bethany was right next to Jerusalem. If they were to go there, they would be within easy reach of the mob that almost stoned Jesus only a few days ago. So when Jesus finally declared that they should go to Bethany, his disciples tried to intervene saying, No, you can't go, Lord. Jesus' disciples pleaded with Jesus from going to that area, saying, You will surely die if you go. Then Thomas said that they should go there with Jesus, so they may all die with him. In John chapter 11, verse 16, it says, Therefore Thomas, who was also called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, so that we may die with him. Some biblical scholars argue that Thomas was being sarcastic here. 
They say he was basically saying, it's over, there's no reason to live on, let's all just die. But I do not see it that way. We have to interpret his statement in the context of who he was and how he conducted himself. When we look more deeply into Thomas and his life and see what kind of person he was, we come to learn he was a disciple who loved Jesus very much. He made that statement because he knew Jesus would go and he could not let him go alone. So Thomas said boldly that they should go with Jesus even if it might mean death when other disciples were afraid of what might happen. In essence, Thomas was saying, how can we let Jesus go there all by himself? I will follow him to the end, even if it's the road to the end of my life. I will go and die with Jesus. The statement reflects Thomas's faith. He was loyal to Jesus, was full of courage, and was a disciple who truly loved Jesus. The second record about Thomas is in John chapter 14. Jesus says the following in chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know the way where I'm going. Jesus was telling them, I will be going to prepare a place where you will come to stay, and then I will come back to you and bring you there so you can stay there. Then Thomas asked Jesus in a serious tone in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Thomas was asking, how can we know that? This question may come across as, how are we supposed to know that in a passive and negative way? But this is a matter of interpretation. When it's translated close to the original language, it actually takes on a positive and active voice. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? A talented and learned pastor and writer, John MacArthur, interpreted Thomas's question. He helped put it in the right perspective. According to Pastor MacArthur, Thomas was asking, I don't want to be separated from you, Lord. I want to be with you forever. But why do you keep saying that you are leaving? If you must leave, then please let us know how we can meet you again. Presently, we do not know how. What must we do to meet you again? Thomas did not want to be separated from Jesus. He also said, Let us also go so that we may die with him, when Jesus said he was going to Bethany. Then he said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way when Jesus said that he was going to prepare a dwelling for them? He said all these things because he loved the Lord and wanted to be with him. Then imagine what must have gone through Thomas's mind when Jesus was arrested and bound in shackles. Jesus, whom Thomas loved so much, was hauled away by the Roman soldiers. Eventually, his hands and feet 
were nailed to the cross. His side was pierced by a spear, and he died on the cross, spilling water and blood. Terror befell on Jesus' disciples. They feared that the Roman soldiers who captured Jesus would capture them also. So they hid in a house and locked the door. Those must have been the most terrifying moments for the disciples. Then it all changed. The resurrected Jesus appeared to them. Here is John chapter 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus had now been transformed into someone that could move freely through time and space. But because his disciples were in such a state of panic, they could not distinguish whether the person in front of them was Jesus or a Roman soldier who came to capture them. To assure them, Jesus did this for them. Let's read verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus showed the wounds on his hands, where nails had been lodged, and the wound on his side, where the spear had pierced through. Jesus revealed himself to the disciples. The scars on his body was like a secret passcode that the disciples needed to believe it was indeed Jesus that was standing in front of them. During wartime, soldiers on the same side used to establish secret passcodes that only they would know. New codes were sent to the bases every day before they were sent out to the hostile battleground. For example, if that day's codes are rabbit and backpack, they had to remember those words for the safe passage on a given day. When they meet soldiers whom they did not recognize, they would point guns at them and say, freeze rabbit. Then what reply should they hear? They should hear backpack. But if they hesitated or said something like pencil case, soldiers would know the other soldiers are not part of them and would open fire. The secret passcodes were special signs that they used to distinguish friendlies from enemies. The reason Jesus showed his nailed, pierced hands and spear-pierced side on his own to his disciples was to show them that he was on their side. He was indeed Jesus. Do not be afraid, my children. I am not a Roman soldier. I am the resurrected Jesus. I am your teacher. But unfortunately, Thomas was not there when all this happened. This concludes today's episode of the 12 Apostles. We will continue on with the story of Thomas next week. Thank you for listening, and God bless. of Calvary.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, The Church at Philippi, God Will Finish His Work. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study through the uh, book of Acts, and we are to Acts chapter 16. So please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, and uh, I want us to uh, kind of recap what we've, where we've been. Uh, we have seen that there had been a planting of a church in Philippi. The key people were involved in this. You'll remember, you'll remember their names. Paul, si- well, first of all, who wasn't here last week? Would you please stand up? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> So, yeah, that would, you'll come back after that, wouldn't you? Um, some key people involved in this endeavor were like Paul, Silas, Luke, Timothy, uh, Lydia and her family, a jailer and his family, uh, a slave young girl who was a slave, demon-possessed and delivered, an assortment of prisoners policemen and magistrates. Remember, they, were, they got in trouble. The new church plant was led by a woman, and her name was Lydia. She was an exceptional business person and an evangelist, and Paul left her in charge of the church. So a lot happened in the three months that he was there. Not long, just three months, Paul was there, and especially in the last week or so of that time that he was there. We know that Paul revisited Philippi five years later at the beginning of his third missionary journey, and that uh, five years later or, or so, coming back, um, or just later coming back through that third missionary journey, he saw them again. They were a, a church where he really knew the people, and the people were close to his heart. I'll talk more about that in a second, but this church had a special place in Paul's heart. I'll just say this, you know, Paul loved everybody the same, and he planted a lot of different churches, and he had a love for all of them, but, you know, this one was special, special circumstances, you know, the church started, and there was, there was an, a riot, and then an earthquake, and the prison doors were open, a crazy way that the church started, just uh, immensely uh, surprising, this church was a loving church with good leadership and godly people. It was, listen, it was the strongest and most problem-free of all of Paul's churches. And it was one that he could look back on and saw that they supported him, not just with words, but with deeds, and financially they supported him a lot. Now, 10 years later, 10 years have passed since... uh, uh, he had found Lydia and the woman praying by the riverbank. I'm thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if we could go back and we could see this church? I mean, we're, I feel like I was kind of there. How about you guys? After we met the jailer and Lydia and all. So when this church was started, I'd love to see what was it like 10 years later? How are these Christians doing? How are the believers doing? And it would be so cool if there was a way, Right? You're saying, right? Yes. If there was a way we could, how could we know whether there is a way that we could? This is really cool. 
The, the Lord preserved a personal letter from Paul to these Christians in Philippi, and we have it. And it's called, boom, the book of what? Philippians, that right, that slide, that PowerPoint gave it all away, didn't it? <laughs> so the book of Philippians is Paul's personal letter to this church. Now, this is what I want to do. I know I love going through the narrative of Acts, don't you? I love seeing what's going on. What I want to do is I want for us to step out just for a minute and look at what uh, happened to this church, and we can get clues looking at the book of Philippians. I want to get to know these brothers and sisters better, and uh, you're going to love them. You're going to love them the more you know them. So as we survey parts of Philippians, we're going to learn about the church that we saw started in Philippi. Philippians was written 10 years later. So I'd like you to turn to the book of Philippians. You'll go through 1st, 2nd Corinthians. You'll go through um, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians. And then we're going to look at Philippians chapter 1. While you're looking, let me just talk. Um, Paul wrote this letter around 62 AD during the beginning of his Roman imprisonment uh, while he was waiting his punishment. This is something you're going to want to know as we're looking at this letter. Paul actually wrote four letters while he was in prison. They're actually called the uh, prison epistles. And these prison epistles, the epistles, you know what epistle is? The wife and apostle is an epistle. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> So, yeah, so the epistles are letters. So Paul, when he was in prison, he wrote four letters. Now, okay, we know he wrote Philippians. What else did he write? He wrote Philemon. He also wrote Ephesians and the book of Colossians. So we've got a good chunk of his writing through these, what we call it, prison epistles. Someone has said we got more from Paul's prison house than from his visit to the third heaven. You know, here is caught up to the third heaven. He says, oh, I can't tell you anything about that. Remember? And, but here in prison, look at what he writes. Now, stop and think about this, you guys. Looking back, could it be that part of God's plan for allowing Paul to be placed in prison was so that he could write. I mean, think about this. Paul was, we know enough about our apostle Paul. No, he was very busy, type A. Uh, the burden of the church is on him, constantly ministering to people, traveling all the time. When does he have time to really sit down and write? Now, we know he wrote, but God had more. And so God stopped him, and God says, you know what? Here's a downtime. And Paul, during this downtime, God wrote these, Paul, these four letters that have been so encouraging to us as believers 2,000 years later. Paul emphasized the need for them to keep their eyes on Jesus, don't get off track, Unlike several other churches that Paul is constantly having to rebuke, to correct, to chastise, these believers 
Never have that kind of rebuke. You'll never read, you do not read in this letter from Paul to this church any kind of rebuke or correction at all. Totally different. This church had the same heart as Paul did. The letter also contains a thank you card. Part of it's a thank you card. Paul thanked them for a gift. They had sent him money to help his life in prison. As soon as they heard that Paul was incarcerated in Rome, they thought, oh my goodness, we have got to gather money together, and they sent it to to Paul. Of course, I'm sure if Lydia was still in business, she sent a big portion of the gift. All the other brothers and sisters are giving as much as they could, and they sent this gift in the hands of men named Epaphroditus, a super cool brother in the church. I hope sometimes I can introduce him more to you. But Epaphroditus took the gift to Rome, but wouldn't you know it, when he got to Rome, he got deathly sick. And so once the church heard about that Epaphroditus got sick, now they were worried not only about their apostle Paul, but they're worried about Epaphroditus. They sent this money to Paul because um, in the Roman penal system, you did not have any kind of food or maintenance of the prisoners. They were thrown in jail, and if they didn't have somebody giving them food, they would starve. If they didn't have anybody supplying them for their clothes, they would just freeze to death. So they gathered the money, they sent it with Epaphroditus to take to Paul so Paul would be able to eat and survive in prison. This is what I see about them. They are generous, loving Christians. So they hear Epaphroditus is sick, Paul's in prison, but Epaphroditus got well, and so Paul wrote this letter and sent it to them by somebody else really quickly so that they could hear Epaphroditus was okay, And Paul could let them know how he was doing, and he writes this letter of rejoicing. The Apostle Paul wants the Christians in Philippi to be encouraged. And this is what I see as I I look at chapter 1, verse 6. Well, yeah, I'm going to read you 3, 4, and 5 because it tells you about his love for them. He expresses, like I said, his love for him more in this letter than any other letter to anybody. In fact, I I put little hearts by every time Paul says something very affectionate. And guys, I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven references to how much affection he has for them. Well, look, look at verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. It doesn't say that of every other church. You know, there's some Christians that I can say, yeah, I love them, but I don't thank God for every memory I have of them, <laughs> right? I thank my God for all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, I love you guys. I'm thinking about you all the time. I pray for you all the time. And I have not forgotten how you partnered with me from the day Lydia was saved until uh, 
here 10 years later. You've supported me, and I'm thankful for that. And he says, I'm also thankful in chapter 4. I'm thankful for the gift that you gave me. God bless you for that gift. Now, he writes in order for them to be encouraged. Look at verse 6. Hey, let's read it together. I don't care whatever your translation might be. I just want us to hear it together, okay? Verse 6 of chapter 1. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? That word, I am sure, means I'm confident, I am convinced that he who began a work in you is going to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't say, ah, I hope this is going to work out for you. Paul is saying, I'm sure, I'm convinced, I'm confident that God's work in your life is going to be finished. I'm fully persuaded of this. Okay, now I have a serious question for you guys. Have you ever started something and not finished it? Would you raise your hand? If you're not raising your hand, that means you've never done anything, okay? (laughs) We have, man. That's the human condition. I mean, it could be that remodeling project. Don't bring that up. My spouse is sending money. You know, you lay out all the tile on the floor, but there's still that, that uh, the casing that goes around, you know, the, the bottom, of, you know, around the wall. Or, or you've got, you started to paint and you got through two and a half cabinets in your kitchen. You realize, ugh, this is not the color. But then something came up. And so you're just doing, dealing with a two-tone, kind of two-tone <laughs> kitchen right now. You just used to it. You don't even see it anymore. Funny thing happened to us was we were trying to paint our front door, and we we were like, "What color do we want?" I don't know. And front door colors, you know, run the spectrum. So we tried some paint here. We tried some more over here, some more over here, and you guys, it was months and months and months before it really got painted. It just had these paints on it. Because we didn't even see it anymore. You know how that goes? We didn't didn't even notice. Maybe it's fixing up a car. Even, oh, I don't want to get rid of this thing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna fix it, and it's gonna be I'll be able to sell it. Double my money. Or you're working on your continuing education, and you know, you just kind of dropped it. You haven't finished that degree. The Bible is saying that God is not like that. The Bible is saying God doesn't have any unfinished projects. He always finishes what he starts. Amen? God began salvation's work in you, and he will finish it. For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. Now, listen to this. Salvation is a process, not in that You have to go through a process to be saved, but once you're saved, you enter into a process. Does that make sense? You're saved, and we call that to be justified. So you're saved, and you're justified, and God looks at you just as if you'd never sinned. I said, I'm just as if I'd 
never sinned. I'm justified. And at that moment, Jesus' perfect righteousness covers us. At that moment, our sins are not just pardoned. We are acquitted. There's no record of our sins on any books, on any computer, on any data place anywhere in the universe. Amen? We're justified. And then, then at that moment, a process begins called, anybody know? Sanctification. Sanctification. And it's a long, long, long process. In fact, sanctification is a work of God in your life for a lifetime. It's the work of God in your life all the way until you get to heaven. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Salvation is a process. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, that's the work of redemption. That's the work of salvation. He who began this work of justification and sanctification will bring it to completion, glorification, at the day of Jesus Christ. How encouraging this is to a church that is really going through some hard times and looking ahead, they're thinking, oh, wow, where is this going to go? We're not sure. He's just saying, guys, hang in there. God's going to finish what he started. Corey Ten Boom, you often hear her quoted. She stated, "God in God's faithfulness lies eternal security. We are secure because God's investment in us is so great. How could he ever possibly abandon us? How could he? What's God's investment in your life? Somebody tell me. What has God invested in your life? Somebody say. Jesus Christ, right? He gave his life for you. Is God going to say, oh, you know, that's not anything? No, God said, I've invested in you. You're saved. I'm not going to let you go. There's a passage that uh, I want you to look at. It was something the Lord put on my heart that is just kind of an aside. It's a little bit of a, just a little bit of a cul-de-sac here. But I think God, I know God has a word for you. It's in Psalm 138. You're wondering about kind of like these Philippian believers, like, okay, where is this all headed? What's going to happen? Um, I, you're supposed to hear this. You're supposed to see this passage. Psalm 138, verse 8. Let's... When you all get there, read verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for my life. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Look at verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. One translation says, the Lord will work out his plans for my life. See, God is at work, and he is not, and he's going to finish the work that he has started. 
We can have absolute assurance of our salvation and that the work will be completed. I want us to look at John chapter 10 for a moment. John chapter 10. Jesus uh, is speaking with some of the religious leaders. They're accusing him of making serious accusations against him. Jesus kind of is, you know, in his own unique way, is able to turn turn the the thing right back on them, and they're the ones that look uh, really uh, stupid. Jesus is talking about how secure we are as believers. So would you please look at John chapter 10 and look at verse 27? You're going to want to highlight these verses. You're going to want to hold on to these verses. Look at verse 27. How about reading with me? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is fantastic. Jesus says, my father, my sheep, they follow me. They know me. I know my sheep. And he says, I give eternal life to them. It's not earned. It's not an award. I give them a gift of eternal life. And they will never perish. You hear that? And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. The word (coughs) never perish in Greek, I, I know I've said this before, but I, it's like I have to say it every time. If you want to say something in the strongest way, if you, if you want it, you would in Greek use a double negative. If I want to tell you that you will never perish, I wouldn't just say you will never italicize, you know, underline. You would say in Greek, you will never, and then they say, no, never perish. It's not translated that way. I wish it was. Because our translators think, well, that's redundant. Never, no, never. No, never is enough. But look, we need to know there's a double negative there. Amen? We need to know that Jesus said, I will never, no, never perish. And then something else is not translated. The words toneon. Aeon, we get the word eon from it. It it means forever. They will they will never know, never perish, Tony on forever. Yes! You will never know perish forever. And he says, I've got you in my hand, and no one can pluck you out of my hand, and my father, you're in my father's hand. And no one can pluck you out of my father's hand. There's just like this double grip on us. So now I need a helper. You're Jesus. So stand up. All right. You're Jesus. All right. And then do you hate this? Do you hate this? But you're right there. And you're, you're God the father. So you come up here. Okay. You had no idea when you came to church, you would become Jesus and you're God the Father for just the time. And you guys are pretty strong, right? Okay, this is going to be important. Because the Bible says that, that I'm, I'm the person you just saved. And you have got me in your hands, okay? And nobody can pull me out of your hands. So 
Don't, don't, okay, don't, okay. Now, not only does Jesus have his, is holding me by the hand, but God the Father is holding me by the hand. So I've got to, now guys, I'm going to lean back and it's up to you. Okay, so I'm, I've lost weight lately, which is really good. But I'm like, I'm like totally depending on them right now. I am totally free, okay? And they're holding me. And if you can imagine, thank you guys. If you can imagine, you're the best. You're the best, thank you. And you guys are strong, and I'm so thankful that you're working out. You You can tell they're working out. Can't you tell I'm working out too? Isn't it amazing to know that Jesus is holding you? I mean, I still feel his grip on me. That God the Father is holding you. I still feel his grip on me. That even if I wanted to pull away as I tried to, they wouldn't let go. Do you hear this? Do you hear this? Even when you're at your worst moment and you think, oh, I'm going to walk away from God, God says, excuse me? (laughs) Even when you've blown it and you think, oh, I've lost my salvation, God's saying, really? I've never let go of you. Jesus has never let go of you. You're secure. We're secure in his love. You shall never, no, never perish forever. God finishes what he starts. God began the work of salvation in you, and he'll complete that work. He's going to complete that work because he is faithful. Jesus is both, the Bible says, the author and the finisher of our faith. What he begins, he ends. We can have real confidence. He that began a good work. Now, I just want to tell you, the good work, sometimes it's the hardest work. Sometimes it seems to be the slowest work. Sometimes it can be a painful work. But it's always a good work. Always a good work. Look at verse 6 of Philippians one more time. For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, you were justified, and at that moment, that double grip came upon you. You were given the gift of eternal life, and no one can take it away. It's yours forever. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, at the rapture. If we're alive at the rapture, we'll be glorified. If we go to heaven before the rapture, we'll be glorified. God will complete his work because he's faithful. Please listen to this. I read it and I thought, wow, I got to share it with you guys. Listen to this. We receive his blessings, though we don't deserve them. 
This is an amazing thing about grace. You can turn your back on God. You can betray God. You can become a traitor to him. You can disappoint him in the way you live, act, and carry on your affairs. But he never turns his back on you. He never stops loving you. He never comes to the place where he is not willing to forgive and to receive you back to himself. That's the amazing thing about God's grace. You can't explain it. You just have to accept it. It's beyond our comprehension. We just can't fathom such love. We can only accept his grace. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that we have solid assurance. We have the, the word that is absolutely clear. So as we're walking through the process here of sanctification, we can do so with the encouragement that we're not going to be lost because through this process. You're working through this process. I want to pray for my brothers and sisters who are just really struggling with stuff. It's junk that, that they have been dealing with. And I pray that you'll give them the power now and lift them out of that because you give us the Holy Spirit who, who gives us the power to, to overcome these things. And I, I want to pray for those that even last night, serious mess up. And yet here they are today. You're not slapping them around. Instead, just the way you are, you reach out your hand again and say, hey, you're still my son. You're still my daughter. I can give you my power. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have this letter preserved for us. And we want to be like these Christians in Philippi who are uncompromising in their faith, we're loving, unified, and growing in their sanctification. We're, we're striving for that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the
Find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and app. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted. And I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. You see, when we trust in Christ and we're walking with Him and His Word's working, we are useful. Useful to the Master. We are useful vessels. The term translated useless here speaks of idle or inactive. The Lord Jesus used it to speak of those wicked slaves who were supposed to be doing his bidding when they were gone, but they didn't. They were idle. They were inactive. The term unfruitful literally means barren. Barren. 
You see, it's all about a true relationship with Jesus Christ. If these things are yours and increasing, you are neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks of a relationship. We always think, well, I want to be useful and fruitful in doing God's stuff. No, it's a relationship with Christ which will bear forth that fruit. It's all about Christ. Useful and fruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the term knowledge here, and also in verse 2, is comes from the Greek word, a cognate of it, gnosis, but it's called epinosis. It speaks of a fuller, a true knowledge. It speaks of a knowledge in the context of a relationship. Peter speaks to believers here, specifically who have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. They have come into a relationship with the Lord. He says, our Lord. The term Lord here in the Greek speaks of master, kurios. And it was the equivalent of the term Lord in the Old Testament, Yahweh, which spoke of the I Am. Jesus is the Lord of Lords. He is the Lord. He is God who took on human flesh. And that's what his name really speaks to. The Lord, Yahweh, is salvation. Yeshua. Jesus. Jesus saves. The Lord is salvation. And then Christ speaks of the anointed one, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who would have to suffer for us before he would be glorified again. So our passage says, for if these qualities, those specific ones you can look at, you can identify specifically, if they are yours, you possess them currently and habitually, and they are increasing, they render you neither useless, which is idle, or unfruitful, which is barren, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there is knowledge that we can have that doesn't include a relationship. That's not what this is speaking of. And there is knowledge that is within a true relationship. I mentioned this last time. We can say we know someone. Like I can say I know the president. I know about him. I have knowledge concerning him. But I do not have a relationship with him. The knowledge is not like I have with my wife. I know her. We have a relationship And how do we grow in that relationship? We grow through true knowledge of one another. And God has opened the relationship to us through the forgiveness of sins that we might grow in a real relationship with the living God. It is only once you have been saved that you can see Him rightly through His Word and we can begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We who did not fear Him before now fear and reverence Him and can relate to him rightly because of what he shared in his word, opening our hearts. So then our passage is speaking of relational knowledge. For if these qualities, verse 8, are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our relationship with Christ is everything. And if we're not increasing in his character in the context of faith, If we're not applying all diligence, that word diligence means to be making every effort. As we'll see, because we've been saved unto this, as we're going to see, then we are useless and unfruitful in our relationship no matter what we say. If these qualities are not ours present and they are not increasing, we are useless and unfruitful. And I want to ask you, are you useless and unfruitful? Are you seeing yourself rightly? The qualities are very easily identifiable. 
If we possess all these qualities in the contrary, the glorious contrary, we are useful and we are fruitful in our relationship with Jesus. And that's everything. Tremendous truth. And so let me ask you this. Are these qualities yours? Are they increasing? The only way they can be yours is if you know the Lord. The only way they can be yours and increasing is if you completely rely on Christ by faith and allow his word to work out in your everyday circumstances, to change your mind, to renew your mind, that you're not conformed to this world, but renewed and transformed. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, a right analysis of our behavior coming from the heart. Only we can see our hearts and God can see our hearts. No one else can see our hearts. We know our hearts. Is this coming from a right relationship with Jesus Christ, his word working in you by faith? If these are yours and increasing, you are neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are these qualities yours? We need to analyze it. We need to know these truths. We need to be reminded of these truths. See, because false teachers will come along and teach you externals to follow Jesus from the outside, not from the inside. You see, they'll deceive you. And you will not grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's what we are to do, as we'll see. So we must therefore in faith rely on Christ, letting his word work in our hearts. We must diligently supply these things knowing that our usefulness and fruitfulness is based on whether we possess them and they are increasing. But notice Peter continues in verse 9, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Very interesting statement. Very interesting statement. It speaks about those who lack the qualities that were mentioned earlier. Those qualities that we see in verse 5. Those qualities of moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Those qualities that are produced in the heart and life of a true believer relying on Christ, trusting in him and allowing his word to work out in their lives. Everything we need for life and godliness, right? So he says here, we have a statement that is an explanation again. Look at verse 9. For, for he who lacks these qualities. The term lacks means not to be present. You know, it's translated other places, he wasn't present. These aren't there. They're not there. If you lack them, we're going to see that... There's something that is true about you. He says, for he who lacks his qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Oh, that seems interesting. Who has had their sins forgiven? Believers. This is speaking of the reality of a believer lacking these things. Very interesting. Now, I believe we'll see if you've always lacked them, then there's no assurance that you've actually been saved. But believers can function apart from a real relationship with Christ. And guess what? When that's happening, it's going to be lacking. He says, whoever lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. 
The term blind here speaks of being continually blind, is continually blind, continually cannot see. And then it's interesting, says the word being, literally blind, being short-sighted. That actually helps us understand. They're blind. They're not seeing, but yet they're short-sighted. They're still seeing, but they're not seeing. Do you understand? Doesn't make sense, does it? Well, they don't see, but they are seeing, but they're not seeing the right thing. They're short-sighted. The word means nearsighted. They're looking at the wrong thing, as we're going to see. They're not seeing things rightly. They are blind to the reality of what God is doing in their lives and what they should be focused on in this life, as we're going to see. Notice it says, having forgotten completed action, his purification from his former sins. Very interesting statement. You wonder, wait a second, if I just forget about being forgiven, that's going to make me not do these things? Well, I think there's more to it. I think there's more to it. I think we're going to see when we have been purified, we were purified unto something. God saved us for a specific reason, as we're going to say. Notice the direct implication is whom these qualities are not present has lost sight and is now looking short of something. Lost sight and looking short. Having forgotten his purification from his former sins. The term purification here speaks of being cleansed. This word comes from the root word from Greek, katharos, which means to be clean or cleansed. It speaks of that which is free of dirt. And in Scripture, it spoke of the purity of metals that had been refined. It's used metaphorically to speak of that which is unadulterated, unmixed, i.e. pure. It's used to speak of ceremonial cleanliness in the context of the law. You see, we are not pure. We are contaminated by sin. We are dirty with sin. We are defiled. You see, our hearts are defiled by sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't think right. We are hardened towards God. We do not fear Him. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We don't give Him thanks or glory by our old nature. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And it is appointed man wants to die and then the judgment. Yet God is and was gracious and brought about the cleansing of our sins, our former sins, as we see here, our sins, they're ours, we did it, our former sins through his son. It is only through what Jesus Christ, the son of God, did that brought cleansing. Let me share a couple of passages. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have been cleansed of your sins. It is through Jesus Christ who brought about purification of sins. We dirty with sin, wretched sinners, cleansed. Think of the most awful thing you've ever touched or got in your hands, and then you're washed, you're cleansed. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, that's speaking of Christ, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made what? Purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. He paid the full price. He brought about cleansing. Look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. This passage really explaining how you can do the things that are related to sound doctrine earlier in chapter 2. 
For the grace of God, chapter 2, verse 11, has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. God's saving grace has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And that same grace in Christ is instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Hey, that's talking about what we've seen in Second Peter, right? Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Hmm, different focus, as we'll see. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us, pay the price from every lawless deed, pay the price for our wicked sins, and what? Catharazzo, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And then look down a little farther, Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's the way we were before Christ. No matter how good you think you were, that's the way we were. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, that's Christ, by the way, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and released us or cleansed us from our sins by his blood. You see, you and I are dirty with sin. We were dirty with sin, and some of you still are. And Jesus Christ paid the full penalty for our sins, and when you trust in him, you receive his righteousness. You are cleansed of your sins. You can't cleanse yourself. You need to be like the leper that came to Jesus for cleansing, now of leprosy, not of sin, but for leprosy. And he said, you can make me clean. Jesus, you can cleanse me of my sins. Forgive me, Lord Jesus. Do you believe it's only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ you can have your heart cleansed from sins? Are you willing to come before him today and admit it, confessing sin and trusting in him alone? Are you willing to cry out to the Lord? Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, we were dirty with sin. But when you trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, you were cleansed, you were purified. So back to our passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities, those seven qualities we saw in the context of faith and a real relationship with Jesus Christ, for he who lacks these qualities is blind. You're blind. You're not seeing. Short-sighted. You're looking short. You're nearsighted. Having forgotten, completed action, his purification from his former sins. He's saying, you've forgotten... Your salvation. Well, how can a believer forget their salvation in a practical sense? How is that? I believe he's not speaking just to the cleansing as we're going to see in context. He's speaking of why God purified us. Throughout scripture, we're going to see that God purified us for his own possession. He purified us so that we would bring him glory. He purified us that we would become more and more like him. We were saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. We see justification, sanctification, glorification. And when we have lost sight of what God is doing in our lives now, then we are going to not exhibit these qualities. Because what God is doing is he is sanctifying us. He is taking his word and working sin out of our lives and producing the character of Christ. All those things that should be in our lives and increasing. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
great passage. See, if I have a practical forgetfulness of the reality of why God saved me, guess what? I'm not going to function rightly. If I don't realize he is working out sin in my life every day, he's taking his word, he's changing me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren. These are believers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning. We'll see that later on. For salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. God takes his Spirit and sets us apart from sin as we believe the truth of God. You see, as I've shared, salvation is shown in Scripture in three places, basically three times. We were saved from our sins. We are being saved. We will be saved. There's three aspects of it. And it begins with our former purification from sins. God is making me more like Christ. Therefore, I should be diligent by faith to act on his word. I should be diligent to trust in him. That's what he's doing. He saved me for a relationship with him. And when I forget this, practically speaking, when I forget that, then I don't function rightly, as we'll see. I'm actually useless and unfruitful in my relationship with Jesus.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.